Hey, Shauna. Hey, Lisa. How you doing? I am doing okay. I am curious. Did you watch the vice presidential debate this Wednesday? Oh, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. I had snacks ready. I was ready to go. Uh, and let me just say, I anticipated some challenges and I cannot wait to talk to you about spin and communication when it comes to how, Cam how Kamala had to engage with Mike Pence. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. Okay, so tell me more. Spin and communication, Kamala versus Mike. Well, I think we've talked about it now for maybe three podcasts <laughs> that I'm still watching the real world alongside the fake world of the West Wing. And as I've been watching both, it's been so interesting to me that, you know, of course we have to watch the pre-gaming of the debate, even after the debate to see, you know, what do these pundits really say about what's going on? And I came up to my own conclusions that no one really won but no one really lost either. And I'm still wrestling with that. Who won, who lost? I don't think anyone did, but what does it mean to not win, but not lose either? We're in this really neutral space. And once I started thinking about things, I was reminded that the standards are completely different. So I feel like we're once again, comparing apples and oranges when it comes to communication. Did, did you watch the debate yourself live? I did, yes. And mm -hmm. I did notice, um, well, at the beginning, you know, the kind of pregame, so to speak, for the debate, one of the commentators um, made the comment that, fair or not, uh, Senator Kamala Harris is going to have to be walking a fine line around how she performs in the debate based on her identity as a woman of color. And it frustrated me that the commentator kind of said, you know, fair or not, right? Like, so the commentator didn't come down on a side of that's a problem, right? So it was mm. as though it was this just neutral articulation of how the senator's um, communication style was going to be handcuffed a little bit, a lot. Mm. Um, and mm -hmm. that felt infuriating because it was just mm -hmm. almost as though it's an acceptable reality. Mm, just another pill to swallow that it is what it is type mm -hmm. comment mm -hmm. or concern. Well, and I knew this going into it. I knew it as a black woman going into it. I knew that there would be some serious challenges around what's acceptable communication for a black woman versus what's acceptable communication for anyone else on the planet, specifically a white male. I just knew walking in that this is going to be a very precarious measurement. And I, I remember it was one meme. I, I can't remember the entire quote, but it was a white gentleman who tweeted out that he was watching Kamala dance on the head of a needle. It was just that precarious, her mm. communication and what she had to think through. She had to be very thoughtful in everything, whether it was her facial expressions or her delivery. Kamala had to think about everything, even when it comes down to, and some of these are gendered and some of these are, are racial and some are both, but even down to thinking about what she was going to specifically wear and how she would look 
And all of that, those are things that others will not have to think about. And it's going to be, what is it, the, the quarterback, uh, Monday morning quarter, all of that's going to be going on where people are going to pick her apart forever. Um, partially based on what, what they keep using as code language. Did you hear that, Lisa, where they use this code language of this is a, a historical vice presidential debate? And I'm like, let's just, yep. why don't we just say what it is, call it for what it is. It's historical, not because of the stream of history, but because she is a black woman on the largest stage in politics in this country. That's what we need to say versus, oh, this is a historical moment. Well, everything in politics is historical. Someone's writing it down, someone's documenting it, and someone's going to compare it to previous experiences. All of it's historical. But what makes this distinctly historical? We did not say that about previous debates. I've been watching debates now for probably, I don't know, at least 12 years, probably longer. I don't think I've heard that language used in that way before this week. Mm -hmm. It is interesting how language is used and who's using it, right? So this is where mm. I think privilege that we talked about last week manifests in our communication, the way that we choose to frame a situation or a behavior or an attitude, um, you know, a really explicit example, you know, what we choose to call racist or not, right? How we um, articulate what racist means, I think, is different based on our positionality. And I think that definitely came through in the debate. What stuck out to me um, actually was a couple of things. So um, Senator Harris was smiling, like all the time that she was said, yes. I'm talking which I just love. P.S. There's now a mug. You can buy a coffee mug that has I'm talking on it. And I completely want that mug because I just I was just cheering her on there. She just did, but she Absolutely. did it with a smile because she had mm -hmm. to do it with a smile because if she had not smiled, then the tidal yes. wave of aggressive black woman stereotypes would have flooded her and they probably still are flooding her. Right. But it would have been mm -hmm. to a greater degree. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, what I thought was interesting is when she also told uh, Mike Pence that she will not be lectured um, about the, the application of the law, right, as a prosecutor. And I th what I thought yes, she, yes. she was going to say, actually, and I, I understand why she probably didn't say this, was I'm not going to be lectured about the existence of systemic racism from a white man, <laughs> That's right. That's Which right. is yeah. like, that's where I thought she was going with it. But I get, I totally get why she didn't say that. Um, but so in, in many ways, her expression of don't lecture me, don't mansplain me about prosecution when I'm the prosecutor was in, it was kind of a cover for that. Um, mm -hmm. So the subtext I felt was there around because it was in the context of the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform mass incarceration and what she did or did not do for the African-American community in California, right? So her saying that I That's felt right. was also kind of a coded way of her saying, don't lecture me on race, white man. I mean, maybe I misinterpreted yeah. that. No, no, no. I hear you. And, and I think what she was doing, you're articulating it well, she led with her credentials rather than leading with her social identities, right? Because she couldn't come out and say, you white man can't lecture me as a black woman on what's really going on here when it comes to systemic racism. But she had to come from a place of, this is what I have done for a living. These are my credentials. Let me roll out my resume. And this is what I can stand on. 
Now, I can add icing to an already good cake if you want me to get into identities, but she didn't have the liberty to do that. She did not have the luxury to say, not only am I a world-class prosecutor, but I identify in these ways, and this is what makes me distinctly qualified to answer this question in ways that she could not possibly fathom. And I think that's what made it so interesting is there were so many moments I heard that she could have led with identity, and she could, but was that smart? Mm. Not so much. Yeah. So she's always having to negotiate that communication. So in, in that um, debate, right, Mike Pence had a clear advantage in terms of how he communicated because he didn't have to jump the same hurdles as her. Um, that didn't mean for me that he won, right? Um, but certainly the way that he was able to approach um, his non-answers <laughs> were... <laughs> Um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it was much, e it was much easier. Oh, well, did you notice? So again, I, I am not a communications professor. Let me just say that. But um, based on what I heard, and I had my watch on at the time, I'm looking at the debate rules. And what I did notice was that they each given two minutes to speak or to respond to the question. And the majority of the time I was looking at my watch, Pence spent a minute 40, minute 45 out of the two kind of pandering, you know, not really saying too much, giving these very long drawn out winded greetings and acknowledgements that really didn't answer the question. And so again, you know, I don't think either one, I don't think either necessarily lost, but I do think that they both may have met their ultimate goals. And the goal was because this has been such a divisive experience with this current administration and now going into this election, the goal, in my opinion, was there are very few people who are still thinking about who they're going to vote for and who they're not. So the goal was not to lose anyone from who you mm. already have. Mm -hmm. And I don't think either one of them lost from whoever they already had. So that determines how you communicate. I feel that if you know that there are still some wild cards out there on the table that you're trying to convince, I think you might speak quite differently than when, look, I know everyone has kind of chosen, but I'm just going to give you a few more credentials as to who I am and why you should feel more comfortable. And the higher stakes of, let's get into now ageism, since we've already talked about race and gender a little bit, we also have to consider too that I think I heard that this might historically be the two oldest presidential candidates mm -hmm. ever on a ticket at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to mis misquote their ages, but I know they're both in their 70s. And so given that it is a very real situation for either, because it's very real that they either could be president eventually mm -hmm. for uh, in in response to a situation that is not created by either one of them right COVID or not they're both right. in their 70s and so what does that mean that makes us think about age and being concerned I think you know we know that 40 is the uh is the age but you know let's say we had a very young president in office yes we're always concerned about their health I don't care if they have a little cough we want to know what's going on however age makes us, you know, our proclivity to catch whatever is much higher. And so with this, I think that also feeds into the type of communication that they could deliver. The, the ageism um, is real, at least in this election, it's very real when it comes to the spin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, for our listeners, I'm sitting here nodding profusely as Shauna is talking, but you, you cannot see that. 
<laughs> right, um, right, right. Yeah. And so there's this confluence of things happening um, related to communication. And I think that we see that in our sporting life too, right? I think that we uh, see how brands, organization, coaches, um, coalitions, clubs have responded to this greater push around racial equality and, you know, before that gender equality and ongoing requests for change, how they are choosing to frame their message. Who is the person speaking and um, what happens beyond just publishing a message? And we looked up the definition of spin prior to coming on today to record. And here's a kind of synopsis of what the definition is. It's that in PR or politics, it's a form of propaganda. It's knowingly a knowingly biased rendition of an event. Um, it's a standard tactic to reframe or modify the perception of an issue or an event to reduce the negative impact on public opinion. And you know, when um, we looked that up, it made me think of Iron Man's statement because they took a really long time, like eight days or something to come out with that statement. And the public pressure was rising and rising and rising, right? And I know that they were probably hearing from people, why haven't you said anything in the wake of George Floyd's murder? And, um, you know, I think Andrew Messick's comment was that he didn't want to say something if it was meaningless. He wanted to have substance behind it. That was Mm -hmm. how he kind of entered the conversation. Mm -hmm. But he certainly, so he spun it as he spun the delay a certain way to reduce that negative impact on public perception. I don't know how successful he was, but certainly as a white man running an organization that is um, staffed with predominantly white people that serves predominantly white people, Right. It was an interesting way to approach the subject. Yeah, yeah. And I thought about that and I've rethought it so many times because I do appreciate the dichotomy between the intent versus the impact situation. You know, the, the intention was let's give a meaningful, thoughtful response that's well-coordinated. And myself, yes, as much money as I've thrown towards Iron Man branded anything, I was paying attention to what was going on and when the communication finally came out, it was quite well crafted in that it was thoughtful around programming. So what are we going to do about it type language? I appreciated that. But I also felt like, wait a minute, we don't have to be an all or nothing um, organization and folks don't need an all or nothing response. So For example, that could have been a phased communication that struck at the right moment. So when I looked back at the email, I said, "Mm, well, there could have been a phase where, unfazed, uh, a phased process where the first email could have been something to the effect of, you know, as an organization, we are outraged at the loss of life and the manner of the loss of life. And we don't agree with what has currently happened with that loss of life there. So there, there is a silence that has been filled with meaningful language and mm-hmm. also stating we are collaborating, we are working with others to provide you with a follow-up thoughtful response on exactly what our action plan is, is in result, um, in response to that. And so look out for that next email and the next one and the next one, because I think that's a chronic issue with allies communication oftentimes is that either the folks that want to become allies or folks that think they're allies think oh we got to do it all at the same time it's got to be one silver bullet that fixes the the issue when in fact 
it's supposed to be a phased response. It's a, it's supposed to be ongoing. You know, Messick didn't have to send out an email and say, this is my first and last email of the year. Here you go. This is what we're going to do. It could have been phased very purposefully so that it let their athletes and, and their employees know that they do care and they're not going to rush a process, but they are in the midst of a process. And I think that would have been a better way to approach it rather than silence, 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 which we know what happens in the lack in, in the silence starts to dissipate. Um, any type of expectations start to rise because they're like, okay, what are you going to do now? You know, it's, it's almost over at this point, frankly, because, you know, George Floyd is now very cold in his grave and you finally de decide to say something. Even if it's fantastic, it may not be well-received because it wasn't well-timed. And so I just think that there needs to be a more phased approach to even the communication of organizations when it comes to these issues. So do you, th do you think that that is a, a manifestation of whiteness or kind of like white supremacist thinking in that we are going to wait until all of our ducks are in a row, then we're going to put it all in one e email, we're going to solve all of the problems all at the same time, send it out, mm. done and dusted, let's move on. Mm, that's a good question. Well, okay. I love what you just said there, the let's move on piece, because I think that's the challenge right there is that we tend to treat whether it's racism, whether it's anti-racism, whether it's whatever, diversity and inclusion and initiative, sometimes it's treated as a to-do list. You know, it's like, okay, let's check it off. It's done you know, moving on to the next thing when, frankly, there is no next thing when it comes to DEI work. It's a constant thing. And so the get it right, get it off our plate and move on approach to the work, I don't think is helpful because it, it then disintegrates the conversations, the work from being really part of the overall work. So it becomes an add-on, you know. So uh, think about all those organizations. I'm sure you've worked with organizations that uh, went through a lot of work and probably spent a good amount of money paying someone to come in to help them build a strategic plan, but then they add a diversity plan on the end of it, like an addendum or an appendix to it, when it should have been woven throughout. And I think that inherently is the problem, that the, the communication, which then you know, predicts the action is it's an afterthought. It's an add on. Let's check it off our list so we can move on to other things. And that indicates to me, if you're moving on to other things, then how important is it really if we're not constantly talking about it? Mm -hmm. I don't, I think mm -hmm. it just minimizes the importance as we do that. So I appreciate the, you know, let's, let's hit this and move on. No, it, it's continual. It is truly phased. Yeah. And I do think so after hearing you talk, I do think then then that's about whiteness, right? Because as a white person, I don't have to live with the threat of racism every day and the, the, the material consequence mm -hmm. of that. As, as a woman, I live with the material threat of sexism and violence against women every day. Right. But, um, and so I'm more likely to then, because that's a preeminent experience of mine, want to keep that, um, front of mind, right? But with white people and race and um, thinking about how our organization is going to address systemic racism, I, I do add it on, right? I just have, here's my checklist. Here's my diversity, equity, and inclusion. We brought in a consultant. Boom, it's done. Next steps, right? It's not an integrative model because that's not something I face every day. And so I think then that lack of experience of racism permeates my individual and organizational communication about the issue. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think when it comes to that communication, you know, think about all the different ways that you can communicate about equity and inclusion and anti-everything, anti-racism, microaggressions, all that. All of that is symbolic and indicative of the value that you place upon it. You know, I just had this conversation with an individual who is uh, the director of a department. Well, when you put on your you know, departmental agenda on your weekly agenda that we're going to spend 10 minutes talking about diversity, then we're going to move on to quote unquote other things. That's very telling that, oh, we're just going to hit this really quick, a flash in the pan type of approach, and then we're going to move on to other things. Well, that tells us how much value you place on something, or we're only going to have equity and inclusion conversations once a year, but it's not woven into the fabric of the organization. That is symbolic and telling as to what priority you place on this work. And so if you constantly either, you either ignore it entirely or it's a true add-on, then that's communicating that, okay, let's do a little something, but we really don't care. You know, let's do a little something so that we're not either losing money or someone doesn't call us out for what we're doing. We can at least say, oh, well, we did that one event for the year or we had that one conversation. And so it's, to me, it's, it's not a complete cop-out, but it is very telling the value that you place on it. I, I don't see much value in, you know, a few minutes here or there and how that works. So, you know, I guess our next, question is just around how do we think about communication and how it's woven into the fabric of organizations, industries, you know, the entire uh, industry of endurance sport. How do we pay attention to how inclusive communication is woven into all of it? Well, and, and what gets said and by whom and how it is received, right? I'm also thinking, um, you know, another kind of element of this, um, moment, I suppose, is organizations elevating, um, you know, the one woman or the one woman of color or the one person with disabilities, you know, into the spotlight as though to say, look, yes, yes, we get it. We're not a bad organization. Mm -hmm. We support this one person, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of a little bit of a sleight of hand that because this one person exists, therefore there's not this larger systemic issue. And I feel like that's also been a kind of a spin, if you will, uh, on how um, organizations have tried to demonstrate their credibility around this issue. Yeah, I agree with you. It's the, (laughs) so I think we're, we're getting into both spin and communication, but also tokenism being used to spin what's actually going on. That one person or that one individual. And what's so interesting about that is I've said it time and time again, if you can count how many there are of a particular identity, then you don't have enough. You know, we've we've talked about it before in endurance sports where, you know, I've gone to those races where there's 2,000 or more athletes and I can count, you know, who I perceive as a person of color there. I can count them. Well, if I can count, then there's not enough. And so, you know, I think that is, in fact, you know, deceptive (laughs) to, you know, elevate your one or two exceptional individuals. Everybody cannot be Oprah Winfrey. You know, everybody cannot be Sika Henry necessarily. Now, and, and given that, I'm not saying that folks cannot succeed. Of course we can, but we can't put all the value on one individual as proving that an entire system is okay. The system is not healthy. The system, and in fact, those folks rose to where they are despite the system. So it, it kind of 
you're right, it is a sleight of hand where let's look at this shiny object, let's look at this one person or a couple people who are successful as to divert us from the entire system that's still leaking, broken, falling apart, and still not putting the work in to correct the system or, or at least dismantle it in a way that we can build it back in a more healthy way. So, you know, where's the systemic communication? What, are we even talking about the system? Or are we just ignoring it? Yeah, and I do think that that has the um, consequence of le- leading people to ignore the systemic problems that we're seeing, right? So another piece of the spin Mm -hmm. definition was the fallacy of selective attention or confirmation bias. So um, if I'm selectively elevating this one um, athlete to demonstrate that there's not a problem, right? I think actually like what's happening rhetorically is you're confirming the fact there's a problem, but you're selectively articulating or creating a narrative around this person as an organization, as an individual, right? Um, To draw attention away from the systemic problems, right? Because we're not highlighting a white person to say, look, white people can make it. Here's this one person, right? Because there are (laughs) thousands of us because the system works for us, right? The same with men. We're not doing that with men, with white men, able-bodied men at least. Right. Um, because mm-hmm. the system works for them. But so mm-hmm. there's, you know, even if we're not saying or using the term exceptionalism, right? Racial exceptionalism, gender mm-hmm. exceptionalism, we're people with privilege, organizations with privilege are engaging in that narrative selectively. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think if you are critical in your analysis of communication, you can actually see that by elevating a single person, you are, like you said, well, mm-hmm. I can count them all on one hand. So actually that demonstrates that there's a larger problem that you're ignoring. Yeah, yeah. Well, and okay, so now we have to get into how that diversion is keeping us from talking about the system. Well, right now, I don't know if many people know about this, but Lisa, I'm sure it affects your work in particular. Um, we currently have an executive order that doesn't allow many of us in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space to bring up language that directly implicates systems. So when we as diversity, quote unquote, experts are told flat out, no, you cannot bring up words like microaggression. You cannot bring up words like systemic racism. You cannot bring up words such as anti-racism. We're being told, and um, some scholars would suggest that we're being censored right now. Um, We're being told that we can't use certain words because those words acknowledge the system. As long as we don't use those words, then we don't acknowledge the systems. And then we stay in that exceptionalism place where, oh, let's talk about those one or two people. There isn't a problem here. And so, you know, I think now, once we finally got to this place where there's been this American awakening, awakening, if you will, around the system, now we're being told, let's not, let's not talk about it. In fact, if you are federally funded, we will take your funding away if you talk about the system. So now we're being silenced. And so for those of us who don't have to worry about federal money and we don't have to be silent, what can we do to continue to bring up the system? Um, Because I I think at certain points, yeah, you're right, that there are racist individuals, there are sexist individuals, there are lots of ist individuals, but how do they become ist individuals? They became that because they were in a system that demonstrates those characteristics. So as long as we don't talk about the system, we'll never dismantle it and we'll just stay in the same spot. Um, But I'm wondering how do we get to a place where we 
talk about the people that overcame despite the terrible system that they're in place. You know, how, how did they get there? It kind of reminds me, Lisa, I don't know if you've read that book, um, Grit, by I think her last name is Duckworth. But the book Grit basically talks about people literally pulling themselves from the pulling themselves up from their bootstraps and how they did it. Um, and I think we're kind of forcing ourselves back to that place of still talking about, oh, well, as long as you have enough grit, you can make it. Mm, yes. And <laughs> yes. And there's some other stuff going on. Mm, yeah, it's definitely a yes. And right. And that just makes me think about, um, well, first, the executive order is so problematic in the sense of part of why we struggle we collectively as a community struggle with talking about systems is because we are taught not to, because to do so is racist or sexist or ableist, Mm -hmm. right? To actually Mm -hmm. even just have the conversation. So we were, I I felt like we were making, we were making some strides there in terms of kind of opening up spaces of communication for folks to talk more openly as hard as it may be. So to now like put a ban on any kind of conversation where we can have that um, discussion because it's racist, it's, to talk about whiteness, which is ridiculous because whiteness is a race. Um, and um, so that's, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts there, but <laughs> that would be a big rabbit hole. Um, and, and then uh, thinking about your second point around the bootstraps, it makes me think of motivational posters, motivational campaigns that exist mm. within endurance sports, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it individualizes um, success. And that, again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a communication tool, right? So I'm telling you That's that right. you can make it if you try. Anyone can make it if they try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then, or if I fail, there's something wrong with me, not something wrong with the system. And so all those posters you see in offices or you see in gyms that, you know, let's not even get yes. into ins- inspiration porn around mm-hmm. the co-optation and exploitation of people with disabilities for mm-hmm. the sake of able-bodied people. That's another podcast, but oh yes. Um, oh, yes. It, it feels like that language that's so acceptable in sport, not just endurance sport, but in sport um, just reinforces this individual versus system issue. Yeah. I, I'm sure you're dead on it with that. And, and I think, you know, I used to be one of those people, I have to be honest with you that, you know, that um, self-motivation, that self-determination that I can do anything I want to do if I just try hard enough. And I still do believe lots of that, but I also believe that with eyes wide open, knowing that there's an entire system that is working in, in contrary, you know, contradiction to that very topic. So as I'm constantly pushing forward, which takes effort, I realize that I may have, going back to our analogies, I may have a headwind that's a bit stronger than other people may have. I can still get there. I'm going to have challenges that will be different from other groups, but there is still a resistance there that cannot go without acknowledgement. And so I'm not sure what we're saying here as far as our conclusion around motivation, um, you know, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, because I'm not saying throw it all out, but I am saying that it does have a context to it. And so, and I think there is a stigma around how quote unquote easy we make endurance sports or not, because some people really do see as dismantling systemic racism, sexism, ableism as making endurance sports easier when it's sexier for it to be hard. And so we need to really think through what that means as far as 
how does motivation function in a context where there are some people that are not challenged equally and very purposefully not challenged equally. So, you know, are, are, do, you, do you subscribe to motivation and what type of motivation do you subscribe to? I guess is my question for you, Lisa, is, mm. um, what, what, is what is even healthy motivation? I guess that might be a better question. What's healthy motivation in a context with the least systemic resistance possible? Yeah, and I'm not trying to set fire, fire to the motivation barn here. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, I, right. I, I do think motivation is important and we each can gain um, motivation. I think the problem for me communicatively, right, when we think about communication is not just what is said, it's what is not said. Um, that intrinsically, if we say that someone isn't motivated, we're also saying something else. And so if we center success in sport, whatever success looks like for you around Mm -hmm. your ability to try to motivate, to participate, then we are wiping away all of that headwind that you just articulated, right? Like, right. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so the challenge of endurance sport is different for different groups. But I, so I, and I feel like focusing only on inspiration or motivation dampens that or blunts our understanding. And I think intentionally, I think in many ways it's intentional so that we don't look at that disparate headwind that's facing different groups and their um, abilities, capacity to access because you said before we started recording, right? Like the bootstraps theory, pull yourself up by your bootstrap is so endemic to the United States story. Yet yes, what if you yes. don't have any boots, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, mm-hmm. the assumption is that everyone has boots and everyone has straps, but that yes. isn't true. No, no, that's not true. And, you know, I, I read an article once that talked about that very topic where there not only are there people that have no boots or no straps, some of those people may not have figuratively and literally no feet, no legs. They, they are in some ways differently abled by a system, not by their own volition. And so what does that mean when everyone has a very different headwind and we're all trying to get to the same place? How can we at least make it equitable? You know, I kind of think about that on, um, you know, if you're on your trainer, how can we have equal resistance here? We're not saying to get rid of all resistance, but what we are saying is, can we start at the same place with the resistance? Um, I think that is a more systemic question rather than a, oh, well, this person is just cruising right along. Uh, in contradiction to what, <laughs> you know, in, in the headwind of what. Um, so I think that's an important question to ask, you know, how can we make the headwind a little more equitable for everyone so as to still get people to the same place? And that's systemic. I think that needs to be a question that's asked by mm-hmm. every endurance sports organization um, because they are part of the system. They've chosen to be part of the system. Uh, so how can we continue to reduce that in some ways? So, Yeah, you know, success lands differently when you've had to overcome double, triple, quadruple the next person. It lands quite differently. So what does success look like in the midst of all this resistance and spin? Yeah, and if we spin the story as you've made it, right? Like Sika Henry has made it because she just works really hard. And I'm not saying, Sika, that you don't work hard. That's not what I'm saying. But what what are we even saying to a whole bunch of other people who 
are not where CK is. Um, so mm -hmm. I, th there's, there's that subtext is really, really damaging and it individualizes the problem, which kind of comes full circle around how we talk about racism, how we talk about sexism. If we just say it's this individual is racist, this individual is sexist, we're not acknowledging they grew up in a system that created that attitude um, mm -hmm. or that policy. Well, you know, so I think now we have to get into the, you know, kind of the call to action of, so now what, you know, how can we communicate differently in ways that don't spin towards one or an individual or tokenism, but spins back out to inclusivity when it comes to language. So I had a, a great conversation with someone that's in the health profession and she talked specifically about how it really irks her nerves when um, someone says, well, this is one of my diabetic patients, rather than saying, this is one of my patients who has diabetes, right? And I heard one of my students, this was many years ago when I had to kind of desystematize some of the language I was using, um, but she was talking about how no, this is not a slave in this picture. This is a human being who was enslaved. Let's, let's acknowledge the system. And I think we need to go there when it comes to endurance sports. How can we use mm -hmm. language in ways that is um, about this is a human being who's in a oppressed system of yeah. endurance sports from whatever angle, you know, whether it's race, sex, uh, uh, gender, um, ability, let's move that to the system so then we don't have the diabetic patients. We have the patient who has diabetes. We have the person, the human who was enslaved. And so now shifting that emotional weight and labor from the individual to now the system who has to take responsibility yes. for its behavior, its communication, its non-behavior, non-response, it shifts the responsibility to a different place that we haven't been to before. Um, so I'm just wondering what kind of what kind of approach should we take to shifting the language from individual to system, would you suggest? And I don't have any easy answers to that, but I know it needs to happen in certain ways. Mm, I think part of that is understanding that uh, <clears throat> if you only have the same group of people writing the messages, um, then mm. your mm -hmm. message is only going to represent one truth, right? That's um, right. That's right. And if you are um, <clears throat> looking to elevate athletes for your organization and you only have one athlete of color or one athlete with disabilities and you uh, choose to elevate that person because they are the sole person, then Mm -hmm. While their story is going to be important and motivating, then that should be a cue to you that you're individualizing um, to the exclusion of asking yourself, why is our system created 15 <laughs> right. athletes and only one of them is a person of color, only one of them is a person with disabilities. Right, um, right, right. So there's some self-reflection here that has to happen, mm -hmm. right? Um, an over-reliance, like if you're a coaching company and you have an over-reliance on motivational messaging and inspiration, well, if this person can do it, so can you. Like what's mm. the subtext there that you're articulating? Like think a little more critically about mm -hmm. what's not being said. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I do acknowledge that inspiration and motivation are two very key pieces to coaching companies. But mm -hmm. are, are you being exploitative of... Mm -hmm. um, it, this largely happens with disabled people, people with disabilities, um, yeah. 
but in other ways too. So I think mm-hmm. that there's some, there's some tangible pieces there and that also who, you know, who are your spokespeople? Mm-hmm. So if you, if you're a big enough company to have a PR person, who is that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So who's the face of your organization and um, how are those messages crafted? So like my guess with Iron Man's message, it was probably almost universally crafted by white men. Maybe there were some mm-hmm. women involved, but mm-hmm. that would be my guess. Yeah. I might be wrong. I absolutely yeah. might be wrong. Mm-hmm. But So there would be some suggestions, I think. And then back all the way back to Senator Harris and Vice President Mike Prentice, right? Like, so Senator Harris is having to think differently about how she communicates because of how it will be received. Right. So you do also have to think about that as an endurance sport organization, as a coaching organization. It's, it's not just about what you say. You have to think about how your audience is going to receive the message. That's right. Because once, once it's out there, it can take on a life of its own. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean you don't have responsibility for how you say it or how it lands on people, which right. is to your point, Shauna, the intent versus impact stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, and thinking about that in both, you know, verbal and verbal and visual ways, right? So when I get those emails, and Lisa, I know you've probably gotten them as well. You get those emails from whatever XYZ company that says apply to be an ambassador to X, Y, and Z. And I scroll down and you're so excited to show me your team from last year. And I do not see one face that looks exactly like mine. Or I only see one face that looks like mine. <laughs> and now you've communicated to me that at least in the more recent past, these have been your values, or at least these have been your areas where you have not made uh, a concerted effort to be more inclusive. So what does that mean for me? Because you're inviting me and at the very same time saying that, uh, I'm not quite sure if you'll be welcome though, because I don't see uh, a diversity of um, body types, for example, you know, we could, of course, obviously race, but body type and other ways of being different in a space, phenotypically, it's not there. And so the intention is questioned. So for everybody that's in endurance sports in one way or another, from a business perspective, thinking about the visual communication that you're sending out to the world, people receive it quite differently. I remember um, this was leading up to, and I'm going to pick on one race, um, but when we went uh, last year uh, to participate in the London Triathlon, which is supposedly the largest triathlon in the world, um, very excited to go and compete internationally, but my group, my, my group of friends who was traveling to go, all black females, we continued to follow their Instagram page as well as their Facebook page there wasn't that much at all that was being put out there, but what was being put out there was over, overwhelmingly white and male. And so we had kind of this ongoing uh, kind of competition to see, okay, y- y'all let us know when you catch at least one person of color in their Instagram or on their Facebook, because it's been almost a year. We've been planning this trip for months now, and we have yet to see a person of color. So ladies, don't be surprised that when we cross the pond and we get there that we don't see any other faces like ours other than our own. We were already mentally and physically and emotionally prepared for that. And so what does it say when your communications now, there's some things that have changed a little bit. I've seen a couple of, um, I've seen a couple of black identified folks um, on their Instagram since then. 
but that might be largely because we had some micro allyship going on here, Lisa, where a bunch of us complained about it in the post survey. Um, I don't know. So, you know, given that, I think communication lands in very different ways and there still has to be some thought around who's going to receive the message because most of these messages seem to be mostly around what we want to tell folks rather than who we want to hear it. And that's two different concepts. Oh, I really like the way you framed that. Yeah. What we want to tell this is who we want to hear it. Um, I think that's a really valuable way to think about your communication. Um, and it, you're right. Communication is much more than verbal. It's what's not said. It's imagery. Mm-hmm. It's um, how your organization is perceived in terms of who you have on your staff. It's yes. your mission, your vision, your values. It's how you put yourself out in the world. Um, social media. It's, it's so much, right? It's even your body language in the way you're interacting around some of these issues. So you have to think about communication much more broadly than what you say. But yeah. what yeah. you say does matter. Yeah, well, absolutely. What you say does matter and what you envision matters. And one thing, and um, uh, you're reminding me, so um, when you and Sarah reached out to me about using that photo of me at the beginning of a swim for your marketing, that landed differently for me because when I stopped to think about it, uh, it was so layered because the first thought to me was, you know, thank you for even considering me. But the second piece was, I rarely see people of color in marketing for endurance sports. And third, I rarely ever see people of color featured for endurance sport in relation to swimming specifically. And so when I see that, and I'm like, this is a bigger deal than, much bigger than me, obviously, but it's a direct in-your-face response to the system that there are so many different layers that we have to address when it comes to making sure that our sport is inclusive. And here are all mm-hmm. those layers in one picture. Mm-hmm. And it just happened to be that I'm looking goofy at the finish, at, at the start with my thumbs up. Um, but we could have picked any person of color in a situation in which they have not been seen as often or as much as they should be. And Mm -hmm. this is our statement to say that we want to see more of this. Mm -hmm. So how do we build that? Um, And so that, that communicates to me and I still have it up on my bulletin board. I was like, I want to frame it. Um, But it it speaks volumes to um, avoid. It speaks very loudly in this void or this silence that endurance sports hasn't spoken into. And maybe we need to kind of figure out ways to, (laughs) to kind of clone that thought pattern of how to do that more often in endurance sports, because we don't do it enough. We know we don't do it enough. So how do we kind of package this in a way that people start to think more consciously and consistently about it? That that might be our next project, Lisa, is thinking about how do we create this inclusive communication, Mm -hmm. um, you know, guidelines for people to do it better and do it well. Um, And I'm not sure kind of where to start with that, but I'm sure some very smart marketing communications folks could help us flesh that out sometime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it requires going beyond the spin, right? It it requires some humility um, to recognize that maybe you're not doing it right. And and that's okay. Um, You know it now. So do something about it, right? (laughs) Right. Rather than you know it and then you don't do anything about it. Um, it. But the, the desire to spin um, one's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and to cr- try and paint this picture that you really do quote unquote get it just obscures the problem. 
So (laughs) you're right. right. Like there needs to be a more intentional focused effort on kind of all facets of communication, ingoing, Mm. outgoing, who's talking, who's receiving, um, Mm. how a message is written, what are the um, unintended consequences, um, all of that. So that, that may be our challenge, our micro challenge for this week is for people to think about ways in which they communicated with inclusive intent, but Mm -hmm. also thinking about how it lands on someone else, you Mm -hmm. know, how did they receive it? And so, um, and that's tough work, you know, to think about the receiver more than how you want to give it. That's very tough. Um, Mm -hmm. So instead of me thinking, I want to give Lisa this for the holidays, instead thinking, what would Lisa like to receive for the holidays? Mm-hmm. That's two different questions. And I think yeah. we need to more with communication. Um, and it, it, it's a mind bender, right? You know, we initially may think all the time, this is what I want to say. And yes, and people want to hear something quite different. <laughs> and so uh, how do we pay attention to what people want to receive? Yeah. And sorry, I'm just one more thing I want to say is, and that makes me think of, um, and for the white people, for the men, for the able-bodied folks. um, So the folks with privilege who are listening to this, right? Mm -hmm. How might other people's communication be constrained based on those systems of privilege that we talked about Mm. last week and touched on this week, right? Yes. Um, Yes. that, That you are not constrained by. Right, thinking yes. about again, Senator Harris, she was constrained about how she could respond and behave in that debate um, because right. of sexism and racism and that intersection. Um, so, you know, it's both how can you be inclusive, an inclusive communicator? What does that look like? And then also thinking about the ways in which people who don't look like you, who mm-hmm. don't have your experience, might be constrained in the way that they can communicate. Absolutely, absolutely. And we should tell folks, let's just be clear. As you're uh, trying this out and practicing this, because we all are going to fumble quite a bit um, in that communication, but I love to hear stories of how we either do it well or we don't do it well and we course correct and move forward. So Mm. Lisa, they should email us. They should email us and let us know how this is fleshing out because we're all going to... um, we're all going to experience this different, differently. It's going to be uncomfortable, which is why it needs to be a phased process of trying and practicing mm-hmm, and practicing. Mm-hmm. Just like in endurance sports, we try and try and try. The very same thing. I think um, the more practice we get, the more comfortable it will be for us. Um, but we just have to put a concerted effort into it. So yeah, I, I think this, this is our homework until next time. Great. Well, until next time, folks. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Shauna. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Tri. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.